for today is uh, Galatians 4, 1 through 9. Hear the reading of God's word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? This is the reading of God's word. Y'all can be seated and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray now that your spirit would open our hearts to receive it, that you would give us faith. We pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. We pray that right now that you would remove any distractions, whatever they may be, from us. And, and we pray that your spirit would do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Father, we even pray this morning for those who, who are in, in homes across our city right now. Some of them have never been in a church. Some of them have never believed the gospel. Some of them have never even heard the true gospel. We pray for them right now. We pray that you would help us to continue taking steps, to continue plodding along in faithfulness, that your spirit would continue working in us, that, that you would compel us to go into our city with the gospel for their sake, because they have yet to believe. So would you give us a passion for those in our city who have yet to believe in Jesus? Would you use your word to do that? Would you, as we approach uh, a text on adoption, would you reassure us what it means to be children of the living God? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, so we are continuing to walk through the book of Galatians. Uh, just to let you know where we're going, uh, well, to let you know where I'm actually physically going, this week, uh, Erica, uh, myself, and the boys, we are going on vacation for spring break, so we're going down to Fort Myers uh, to, to spend some time with Erica's aunt, and so we'll be there from Monday to Monday, so that means that next Sunday I won't be here. Uh, depending on, uh, you know, the situations with Josh's grandfather, Lord willing, he will, he will be here that Sunday. But Avery is going to be preaching next Sunday, so he'll be in the pulpit. He'll continue on uh, in our, our series through Galatians. It was 
this is hilarious as we were breaking down the text. So at the beginning of the year, as we are just breaking down what comes next in the book of Galatians and, and you know, what we should preach when and when to take a break and all that stuff, um, you know, Avery was like, okay, so I'm going to be preaching. I joked with him and I said, I'm going to give you Galatians 4, 21 through 31, so you have to preach on Hagar and Sarah. You know, that's, if you're not familiar, it's, it's kind of a difficult, tricky passage. And he was like, oh, no, that would be fine. Like, I, I would welcome that. That would be challenging. So many people have written stuff. What I don't want is to have to preach Galatians 4, 8 through 20. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but... Um, next week (laughs) that's exactly what's up but anyway i've already like avery's already been talking he's actually as he started looking at it got a little bit of excitement about preaching next week as well so i can't wait for you guys to to uh, hear from avery next week uh we're going to finish galatians 4 the week after that so so the week after that we're going to finish galatians 4 and then we're going to take a break and that will be we will run into palm sunday so from april 5th to April 26th, we will, or sorry, April 5th to April 19th, we're going to do a mini Easter series. Uh, We'll have Palm Sunday, Easter, and then the week after Easter, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. So we'll we'll spend a few weeks there, and then we're going to pick back up in Galatians on April 26th. We'll be in Galatians 5, and we see that glorious phrase right, right a couple weeks after Easter, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So can't wait to get there with you. But to let you know where we have been, we've been in Galatians 3 for a number of weeks now, and so we finally ended that. In Galatians 3, though, Paul has been defending his gospel against attacks from those who had trickled into the Galatian churches and were teaching a false gospel. So Paul's opponents, we've learned over the course of Galatians, they were teaching that salvation required faith in Jesus plus obedience to the law of Moses, specifically for the man to be circumcised. So according to these false teachers, you could not truly and fully belong to the family of God unless you became a Jew, because only the children of Abraham are God's people. Now, Paul agreed with that last statement. Only the children of Abraham are God's people only Abraham's children, Paul has even said himself, are the heirs of the gospel promise. But what Paul argues for in Galatians 3 is the identity of the children of Abraham. Who is a child of Abraham then? Is it someone who is culturally a Jew? And Abraham, or, uh, Paul says, no, it is those who have received Jesus by faith. If you have received Jesus by faith, you are a child of Abraham and an heir of the gospel promise that was made to him. And what Paul is arguing for here is that Nothing else is necessary. There is no necessary addition to faith in Jesus when it comes to belonging in God's family. Now, this morning, we're looking at Galatians 4, verses 1 through 9. Now, this is the climax of Paul's argument for what it means for us to be in Christ. He's going to finish the argument at the end of chapter 4, but this is really the climax. If we are in Christ, we are Abraham's offspring— We are heirs according to the promise. We are children of God. But what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to be a child of Abraham? What does it mean that in in Paul's words in Galatians 3.26, that in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith? Paul gives us an answer in one verse, and it's one of those key verses in Galatians. It's, It's one that you would definitely want to memorize It's Galatians 4, 7, and that's going to be our anchor verse this morning. So it's going to anchor us in everything that we do. 
Galatians 4, 7 is Paul's conclusion to his argument in Galatians 4, 1 through 7. So he makes an argument, Galatians 4, 7, that's the conclusion. He's, he's arguing conclusion in Galatians 4, 7. We're going to use that conclusion as a guide to help us understand the rest of this passage. So there's one main idea that I want you to, to hang on to, and it's just a rephrasing of Galatians 4, 7. One main idea. We are no longer slaves, but children of God. And if children, then heirs through God. We are no longer slaves, but children of God. And if children, then heirs through God. This is the climax of Paul's argument. What does it mean to be in Christ? Now, this main idea is made up of three parts, and each of them relate to our adoption into God's family. And so we're just going to make three observations, essentially, about adoption. First, our adoption means that we are no longer slaves. You see at the beginning in Galatians 4-7, the conclusion. So you are no longer a slave. Second observation we can make about adoption. Our adoption means that we are now children of God. Look at Galatians 4-7. It says, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. All right, and then the last observation we make, our adoption is through God, is through God. So he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. How? Through God. So three parts. We are no longer slaves. We are now children of God, and it all comes through God. Let's, let's break it down real quick. So our adoption means that we are no longer slaves. Well, if we are no longer slaves, that implies that at some point in our lives, before the coming of Christ in the world, and before the coming of Christ to us personally in our hearts through faith, we were slaves. Now, how were we slaves? How were we slaves? Let's, let's read Galatians 4, verses 1 through 3. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, I want you to jump down to verse 8 to, so that you can see. There are a couple phrases that are repeated in verses 8 and 9 that I think it's important for us to consider. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? So you see a repetition of elementary principles of slavery. You were enslaved. You are slaves. How? How are we slaves? How were we slaves? What is, what is Paul talking about here? And verses 1 through 2 in particular, they're debated a lot. Like what, there's a clear analogy that Paul's making, but what, what is the analogy that he's referring to? Because when you examine uh, Greco-Roman culture, it doesn't, it doesn't parallel that well in, into what Paul's going to say in verse 4 and, and how God has responded to our slavery. Um, so there are a few different 
things we can say about our own slavery. Something else that's different is just the interpretation of, and even the translation of elementary principles. It has a footnote in my Bible. I don't know if there's a footnote in your Bible above principles, but elementary principles in mine, it goes down, you could say elemental spirits. shows that again in verse 9. There are different ways that you can interpret that. There are different ways that you can translate that. And so instead of just choosing one and going with it, I'm going to share the essence of three different views here. Okay, so how were we slaves? When Paul says you are no longer a slave, it should cause us to reflect back, okay, so before I trusted in Jesus, I was a slave. What does that mean? All right, three levels. Three levels of slavery here. So first, on the level of salvation history, the level of salvation history, the people of Israel specifically were enslaved to the law. Now, this would not have included the Gentiles. This would not have included the Galatian believers in this way. Um, as, as Paul is talking about the law as a guardian, and he's talking about the nation of Israel as a child who is under the guardian until they come of age, Paul, we believe, is referring to the people of Israel specifically. So, on the level of salvation history, the people of Israel were enslaved to the law. Now, they were heirs, if they, if they were believing, if they had inherited the faith of their fathers, they were heirs to the promise that was made to Abraham, which means that they would one day inherit spiritual liberty. But they were like minors in an estate. This is, this is Paul's argument. The inheritance would be theirs one day, but not yet. They're, they're, they're too young. They haven't come of age. And so, by and large, the people of Israel did not experience the promised freedom that God's people would one day experience in Jesus. The time had not come. And that's why Paul starts in verse 4 with, but when the fullness of time had come. So the people of Israel, they did not experience that. Jesus had not come. The fullness of time had not dawned on the earth. And so they were like children that were awaiting an inheritance, but they, they had yet to receive it. So by and large, there were a few exceptions, but the people of Israel did not experience the freedom that is promised to God's people. All right, so first level, salvation history, the people of Israel were enslaved to the law. But there's another level to it. There's another level to it. Uh, on the level of human history, so as you think of just humanity for all time, on the level of human history, all people have been enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. All people have been enslaved to the principles of the world. So I, I, I believe this is what Paul's saying here. Even if we have never heard of the law of Moses, because these Galatians, they, a lot of them likely, they were just pagans. They, they weren't under the law of Moses the way that the Jews were. But even if, even if we've never heard of the law of Moses, we are all striving to live up to some standard. And it ends up enslaving us. We, we all have a particular vision of the good life that does not include Jesus. And so we are enslaved to various worldviews, philosophies, and idols that promise us happiness and joy and fulfillment if we would only meet the standards that they hold out for us. And so we see this in paganism. We see this in secularism. We see this in materialism. And, and that's why Paul is able to make the exact same statements about the Jews as he does the Galatians in verses 8 and 9 as you compare it to verses 1 through 3. But there's a third level to it, too. So there's a level of salvation history. There's the level of human history. All people everywhere are enslaved to various worldviews and philosophies. But the third level is on the level of a Christian's 
history. So not Christian history, but a, a Christian's history. Christians can live as slaves even though they are free. Christians can live as slaves by submitting to the yoke of legalism. And I, I don't know if you see it this way. When you think of other religions, Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, bad, wrong. And, you know, then you think of, you know, irreligious people, secularism, or, or you think of, of paganism, whatever you think of, you're bad, wrong, avoid, and it's obvious to you. Once the Bible is employed, though, it tricks us a little bit. But Bible-based legalism is just as dangerous as, as those religion, religions that completely reject Christ outright. We have access to freedom and joy and blessing by faith in Jesus, yet it is possible for us to enslave ourselves to legalistic ideas and laws that we set for ourselves. We, we can see ourselves in relation to God solely on the basis of our moral, religious, or spiritual efforts. How, how do you view yourself in relation to God? If it's only based on what you do or don't do, you're flirting with legalism. When you evaluate your relationship to God based on the degree of your current faithfulness or obedience, you will live like a slave, not a son. So, yes, in salvation history, the people of Israel were enslaved to the law, and all humans are enslaved to various worldviews and philosophies and religions all, all over the place. But Christians, too, are prone. That's why Paul warns, why does he have to say this in verse 9? Why does he have to ask this question? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Before Christ, we held the legal status of slave before God. We were enslaved to the law. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world and even to our own self-created rules that we've established to evaluate whether we are in the family or not. This particular kind of spiritual slavery that we are under by nature is inescapable through human effort. True freedom cannot be found even in the law of God. It can't be found in secular worldviews. It can't be found in Bible-based legalism. We are by nature slaves to sin. That's why Paul has to warn us, don't turn back. Don't go back. Don't go back. Why would anyone want to be a slave again? Because it's comfortable. We like the rules. We like having a standard that we're supposed to meet. And if we're able to sometimes meet it, that's even better. So the more that we try to add to the free grace of God in the gospel, the harder that we work to earn God's acceptance and approval, the faster we return to the slavery from which we have been liberated. So we need this reminder. We need this reminder. You're no longer a slave. 
which means we need to think back. What did it mean for me to be a slave? I once was a slave. So if you're tempted to return to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whether in the secular or religious form, you need to remember that you are no longer a slave. God has adopted you into his family by his powerful grace and his tender goodness. Your status has forever changed. You have gone from being a slave to a son. Your status has changed. Your place in the world has changed. So, so Paul's exhortation his, through a question is, how can you turn back? How can you turn back to this? You are no longer a slave. That's what our adoption signifies. But our adoption also means, quite obviously, that we are now children of God. So negatively, you're no longer slaves. No longer slaves. Leave it in the past. Anything that would try to enslave you, whether it's a secular worldview or a Bible-based legalism, reject that. Reject that. We are free, and we are in Christ, and we are sons and daughters of God. But positively... We are sons and daughters of God. So you're no no longer a slave, Paul says in verse 7, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Our status has changed. We were once slaves with no right to claim ownership of any of God's kingdom. We had no inheritance, only work to do until we died. With no hope of future inheritance. But now we are children of God. Now, how do slaves become sons? And really important for Paul, since he's using this illustration, how would a slave in Paul's day have become a son? How does that work? There's only one way. There was only one way in the ancient world for a slave or a servant to become part of the family, and it was through a legal process called adoption. That was it. That was the only way it could happen. In the Greco-Roman world, a childless, wealthy man had the option to adopt one of his servants so that he could have an heir to give an inheritance. Now, at the moment of adoption, when it, when it legally occurred, at the moment of adoption, that man ceased to be a slave and immediately received all the financial and legal privileges within this rich man's estate and also the status that he carried outside in the world as a son and an heir. So, Although by birth, he was a slave without any kind of relationship to the father, he now receives the legal status of son. It's a new life with new privileges. So adoption is a remarkable metaphor for what God has done for us in Jesus. It's remarkable when you think about it. Those of us who were by nature born as slaves are adopted, are now sons. We are heirs. We, we have an inheritance with God forever. So since we are children of the king, we are heirs of the king's estate. All that belongs to him will one day belong to us. And the mysterious beauty of the gospel is that even now, even now we can say that everything that belongs to God, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. That's why one of my favorite lines that we sing here at Trace is from that song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. I love that song, but there's a line in it that says, Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. We can each sing, all is mine. Why? 
because we have been adopted by God. We are his children. We possess the full rights of sonship. And this is why Jesus can pray in John 17. You remember his high priestly prayer? In John 17, he prays, Father, let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The Father loves the disciples. The Father loves you as much as he loves his own son. Why? Because you are his son. You are his daughter. You are a child of God. So we are free then to live with the confidence and courage that only a child of a king could live with. Knowing that this is our father's world, not just our God's world, you know, not just the divine's world and we relate to him or maybe he's even forgiven us, our judge's world. This is our father's world. It helps us confidently, courageously, and sacrificially live in it. We can laugh when danger comes. We can hope in the depths of suffering because all that belongs to Jesus belongs to us, including his resurrection. So even, even as we're thinking of a number of, a number of folks in our faith family who are, who are sick and, and who, have, who have been struggling, even those that we've mentioned, Josh's grandfather, TK even now, because we are children of God, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. That's our inheritance. And, and it's awaiting us. So we can grieve with hope. We can long with hope no matter what comes in this world. Not even our fiercest enemy, that undefeated enemy, death itself, can finally defeat us. We will be raised because Jesus was raised. We will conquer death as he conquered death. So there is nothing and no one in this life that we should fear. And anyone who comes against us in our gospel work, our Father is sovereign over them too. So now here's where we Here's where we get it, get it wrong a little bit. Although we are children of God, we typically don't see ourselves that way, or maybe we don't fully understand it. We probably more likely tend to think of ourselves as forgiven slaves rather than adopted sons and daughters. Um, but we're not forgiven slaves. I hope you notice what Paul is saying here in verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. There is a clear shift in social status before God, spiritual status before God. Jesus did not come to make us obedient and successful slaves. And it is important to see the difference. It's important to know that you haven't just experienced an improvement in your behavior, but that you actually possess a new nature, a new status in Christ. So think about it for a second. How do you understand your life now that you are in Christ, especially as you relate to God? So when you think about your relationship with God, how you communicate with him, how, how you think about him and what he thinks about you, what does that look like for you? How do you see yourself? Um, now, maybe, maybe, 
before you believed in Jesus, as you think back on your own testimony, or maybe even as you share your testimony, you saw yourself, as Paul accurately, you know, says we were, disobedient slaves. We were disobedient slaves. We were always getting into trouble. We just can't keep the rules. We, we could not follow God's will. And our lives, they did not align with his desires. Maybe that's the first part of your testimony. But if this is the second part of your testimony, you're, you're missing it. You're missing it. Now that I have Jesus, I can finally keep the rules. Now, now that I have Jesus, I can finally stay out of trouble. I can finally follow his will, and I can finally align my life with his desires so that he will finally accept me. Through Jesus, he gives me the power to obey so that God will finally welcome me in, so that he will finally approve of me. That's just a forgiven slave. No. Jesus did not come to make us obedient and successful slaves. Jesus came to make us sons and daughters of God. The gospel is not good news that your behavior will improve. Our behavior does improve, you know? We, we do become better people. It, that, that's, that's no less true. But that's not the primary work of Jesus on the cross. The gospel is not good news that power has come for you to finally earn your way into the love and pleasure of God. The gospel, what Paul is celebrating in Galatians, the gospel is the good news that salvation comes by grace and is received through faith alone. The gospel is the good news that God has come to bring you home. And you once were a slave to sin and the law, but God sent his son to obey the commands of the law and to bear the curse of the law in your place so that you can go from being a slave to a son. All of what Jesus has done for you was for the purpose of your adoption into the family of God. You were once a slave, but your status has changed. You're not now an obedient and forgiven slave. You are a child of God, fully accepted into God's family, and welcome to enjoy all the benefits that come with the family name. Now, what gives us the right to live with such confidence and security? How can we, how can we do that? How can we so boldly encourage one another this morning and say, no, you actually are a child of the eternal God of the universe. Everything is yours. Everything belongs to you. You have a glorious inheritance awaiting you. Stay the course now. Don't turn back. Don't turn back. Your, your future is gloriously bright. How can we say that with confidence? The answer is found in the source of our adoption, verses four through six. Our adoption is through God. So at the end of verse seven, he, Paul said, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. How? Through God. Through God. This is how we can know that our adoption is secure. It's through God. This is how we can know that God won't one day abandon us. We are adopted through God and by God. This is how we can know that we are truly sons and daughters of God, that we truly have a place in the family, that we truly belong. Because we are children and heirs through God. 
And this is what it tells us. Our adoption, our place in the family of God, comes through God or it doesn't come at all. We either remain slaves or God makes us sons. There there are no other options there. We cannot purchase our own freedom. God must do it or it won't be done. It is impossible for us to become children of God on our own. But all things are possible with God. And here's how it works. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God came for us. God is for us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is for us. So each person of the Godhead, of the triune God, is intimately active in our salvation. We have Father, Son, and Spirit active in bringing us home. And in the fullness of time, when God could have righteously sent everyone to hell, he chose in his goodness and grace to send his Son and his Spirit to save us from the fate that we deserve. All right, and here's how it works. Here's how it works. We are sons and daughters of God through God, and here's how we'll break that down. Through what he has done through his son and what he is doing through his spirit. So let's, let's look at each of these. Let's look at the sending of the son and let's look at the sending of the spirit so that we can find security in our adoption into God's family. So first, what has God done through his son? In history... God has objectively and legally secured our adoption through the work of Jesus. So first, our adoption is historically secured. The Son was sent in the fullness of time, born of woman, born under the law. Okay, so first, in the fullness of time. A lot we could say about this, but I only want to emphasize a couple things. At just the right time in human history... God sent his son into the world to fulfill all that he had been doing, all that he had been building up to. All of history, all of redemptive history, it had all been building to this moment in time when God the Son took on flesh and came to us. But here's what I want to emphasize here. Not necessarily the whys, like why, why then? Why, why was that time in history the fullness of time? What I want to emphasize is that Christianity depends on something happening in history. It depends on historical events, or, or, else, or else it completely crumbles and it falls apart. Christianity depends on the historicity of Jesus. If Jesus, if it could somehow be proven that Jesus never existed, our faith isn't one where we can say, well, that stinks, but I mean, we still have a lot of good... No. No. It, Jesus has to be who he said he was, or our faith is completely false false christianity depends on historical events the birth the life the death and the resurrection of jesus must be true or christianity is false and it should be rejected so the son was sent in the fullness of time but the son it continues this thought was born of woman so how did god send his son Well, the eternal divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and became truly human. That's how he came to us. He he didn't come as a spirit. He, He became human. 
Now, this is where that's surprising, and this is where the gospel is so rich and so beautiful and, and, and so different from so, so many other worldviews. The gospel doesn't begin where we think it should. It doesn't begin at the top. The gospel, the way of salvation, we would think would be top-down, especially with such a glorious God. You have this glorious God, and if you want to be with him, you better get to the top. And, and so the gospel, you would think, would be news of how to get to the top. But Jesus was born of woman, which means that salvation is actually from the bottom up. God came down to us. Martin Luther put it this way, Christianity does not begin at the top as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. You must run directly to the manger and embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms. So Jesus was born uh, of woman. All right, second, what, what else do we see here? Paul says that Jesus was born under the law, under the law. So very simply, Jesus was born as a Jew. Jesus, and, and, and as a Jew, Jesus was circumcised. Jesus was born under the law. But, but even more significantly than that, Jesus, being born under the law, he did what no one before him had been able to do. He perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus obeyed the commands of the law. He lived the life that we could not live. And in his death on our behalf, Jesus came under the curse of the law, which is only reserved for those who break it. So, so he died the death that we deserve. He died in our place. And Jesus fulfilled the law in his life, and he removed the curse of the law in his death. So, so Jesus came, and he was born under the law. And all of this is to say that our adoption depends on the birth and on the perfect life and on the sacrificial death of Jesus. Our adoption is not merely a theological idea. Our adoption is a historical reality. Jesus had to be born. He had to die, and he had to be raised from the dead in order for our adoption to be secured. But since this has happened, all you have to do is look back to history. Did Jesus do what he said that he did and what the gospel writers say that he did? If it happened and you believe in him, your adoption is completely and forever secured. All right, so our adoption is historically secured. But the other thing we see here is that our adoption is legally secured. So look at verse 5. Paul wrote, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, look at verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So something has happened legally to secure our adoption. We've talked about this just a little bit, but I want to talk about this word redemption, redeem. The son was sent to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And the way he writes this lets us know that if Jesus didn't redeem us, he could, the Father could not adopt us. So adoption depends on redemption. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a legal transaction has occurred. A purchase has been made. So before we can be adopted, we must be redeemed. And the word redeem means that Jesus purchased he purchased those who were under the law. He literally bought us out of slavery. Jesus paid for our freedom with his life and his death and his resurrection. So we've been saying for weeks, and Paul's been saying, you know, throughout Galatians, 
Salvation is free to anyone who would come. It is free to anyone in our city, anyone in the world who would come to Jesus by faith. It costs us nothing. But that's not to say that our salvation is not costly. Jesus purchased our salvation, and it was costly to him. He purchased our freedom from the law and from sin by fulfilling what the law demands. The law demands a payment of perfect obedience. And we can't make this payment. And since we can't make this payment, that's why we remain in slavery to the law. But Jesus, I hope you see how this connects here, he was born under the law, just like us, but he perfectly obeyed the law's demands, which means that he was able, the only one able, to purchase our freedom. So our adoption then, our place in the family of God, is objectively secured, objectively secured, by events that happen in history and by a spiritually legal transaction that has happened. So Jesus, by the historical realities of his death and resurrection, has purchased us from slavery so that we might receive adoption as sons. And if you've ever doubted whether or not you belong to God, know that your place in the family of God is as secure as the reality of the crucifixion and resurrection and the sufficiency of Christ's death. And I love the objective stuff. I love it. I love knowing that no matter how I feel, no matter what kind of day I'm having, it is objectively true that I am a child of God. I'm a child of God today. I'm a child of God tomorrow, not because I've been really good on either of those days, but because God has been so gracious in sending his son for me. I love that. But God has given us something more. Our adoption is secure, not just because of what he has done through his son, but through what he is doing through his spirit. Let's, let's look at verse 6. I love this language. Because you are sons... Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's so much here. As I said, it's good for us to know that no matter how we feel, no matter how fickle we may be, that we have a place in God's family because of what Jesus has done in our place. However, God is so good to us He's so good to us that he doesn't just take care of us historically and legally. He could do that, by the way. And it would be such a gift if God just took care of things for us and we were historically and legally secured. You don't have to worry about it. You're trusting in Jesus, you're good. You have an inheritance awaiting you. And what a wonderful gift that is. But God is so good that he takes care of us experientially too. He doesn't just want us to know that he is our father. He wants us to know him as a father. He he wants us to know his love for us personally. He wants us to feel it deep within our hearts. He wants us to practically, tangibly, and personally experience, not just know, what it means to be a child of God. So in this adoption process... Once all the documents are signed, once all the checks are cashed, our Father brings us in for a loving embrace. 
God doesn't just want you to know that you are a child of God. He wants you to feel it. He wants you to experience divine childhood. And he does so by sending his spirit. Don't miss the way that Paul writes this. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So because we are children of God, God sent his spirit into our hearts. You you notice the order here. You are adopted into the family of God. And because you're a child, he sends his spirit. He sends his spirit into our hearts. The indwelling spirit of God, Paul writes in Romans 8, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the spirit of God confirms our adoption and reminds us that we're children of God. But I love how he finishes this. The spirit was sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. By the Spirit of God, God gives us a taste, a taste of the very experience that Jesus had. Okay, so Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember it, don't turn to it now, but you can go to Mark 14 and, uh, and check this out later. But when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out, Abba, Father. All right, there's another place in Romans where, where this phrase is found, and that's it in the Bible. This level of intimacy that Jesus had with his Father, with God the Father, we can have. We can have the same intimacy, the same closeness, the same comfort, the same assurance that Jesus had because we too are sons and daughters of God. Do you see what he's saying here? Because you are sons, God has sent his Spirit to testify that you are sons, but also he has sent the Spirit into our hearts so that we would cry, Abba, Father, because we are children of God. We can experience God as Jesus did. Because we are children of God, deep intimacy with the creator of the universe is normal. It shouldn't be normal. I don't know if I don't know how that hits you. Deep intimacy with the creator of the universe should not be normal, but in Jesus, because we are adopted into the family of God, it is normal. We can speak to God honestly, openly, just as we would to any good earthly father. Have you ever considered the scandal of that? That you can actually talk to an infinitely holy being who created the universe in the same way that you would talk to your dad. And don't you just love the simplicity of this confirmation that the Spirit is sent into our hearts to teach us and to help us cry out for God as a child cries out for his or her parents? So I was, I was studying, you know, the word Abba, and, and most of you are probably familiar that it's the Aramaic word, you know, for for like Papa, you know, just a you know, daddy, you know, intimate um, a phrase for a father. But there's another way that the English, that you can translate into English. You can actually translate it faithfully as scream. Scream. It, it surprised me, you know, as I, was, as I was looking at different things. But isn't it true? Isn't it true that our prayers are most intimate and most raw when we are most vulnerable? We typically pray these flowery prayers, but we only do that when things are going well. 
It's a luxury to, you know, pray a flowery prayer. When you suffer, you don't have time for that. When, you, when you're suffering, when you're wrestling with God, or when you're in deep pain, you just cry out to him. You cry out to God, and you pour your heart out to God. And I don't know, maybe you've never prayed a prayer like that. Maybe you actually think that prayers have to be refined, full of big theological phrases. Well, how do you pray when your life collapses? How do you pray when your life collapses? When we are facing the unknown, when we are facing the uncertain, when we are walking through hell itself, when we experience the crippling pain of loss and when we are afraid or when we are alone, it's in those moments when our prayers are raw and they're muffled with tears. It's in these moments when we cry out, Abba, Father, and our prayers are more like screams and cries for help. These aren't prayers we would likely see written in a prayer book and they're not prayers that we would likely read together you know on the screen on a Sunday morning these are the prayers of children who need their father this is the access that is open to us in Jesus we are God's children so we cry Abba in the depths of our suffering because we know that our father cares crying Abba, these most intimate prayers, they not only most clearly demonstrate our dependence on God, but they most clearly demonstrate our adoption. God sends his spirit to his children so that we would not just know mentally that we have a father who cares for us. He sends his spirit so that we would feel, so that we would experience what it means to be a child of God. So through the Spirit, we not only know that we have a Father in God, we experience God as our Father. So closing question for you. Are you acting like a slave who is afraid of God or afraid of the world? Or are you living like a child who is almost blindly, not blindly, but it seems that way, assured of your father's love only in a toxic home are there children who doubt whether their parents care for them or not most children when they're young the thought doesn't even cross their minds whether or not their their dad loves them or not they know and they experience it this is the access that we have if you have trusted in jesus you belong to the family of god you are his child you are an heir of his eternally glorious kingdom so let's live like it by being aware of our former status as slaves, knowing that we are always prone to want to return to slavery through gratitude for what God has done for us in his son on our behalf and through assurance and joy in what God is doing in us through his spirit. Let me pray.